You haven't heard from me for a while because, well, in January of this year, I hate to tell you, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. I cannot recommend it. I can, however, recommend that you get a colonoscopy when you're supposed to. If I had just gotten a colonoscopy at least at the age of 60, I would not be experiencing all of this now. But still, the prognosis is good. I can't say they got it early, but I can say they got it before it was too late. So within a couple of years, with chemo and everything, I should be cancer-free. The odds are in my favor. And this is all thanks to living within five hours of perhaps the number one cancer center in the world, MD Anderson. And there they took great care of me. I had laparoscopic surgery, and they removed the tumor. It did not spread to distant organs. So, as I said, uh, the prognosis is good. I feel fine. I feel energetic. I'm going about doing the things I always do, except for the chemo, which is uh, is a bit of a distraction, to say the least, on the, the weeks that I must do that. But we soldier on because um, <laughs> the alternative is uh, not nearly as rosy. So that is why I've been neglectful, you might say, of Beyond Texas. And I noticed that people still download a lot of the podcast each week. So I'm, I'm glad that it has staying power. But we need, obviously, fresh material from time to time. And uh, so I'm going to give you a new story today. I've always enjoyed ethnographic works, books about people who lived in another culture for a while and learned to love it. Or at the very least, they learned to love it long enough to provide insights about the art of crossing cultures. Carlos Castaneda's famous Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaqui Way of Knowledge, is one such book about the peyote culture of the Yaqui Indians. He lived with them for a time and wrote about white magic, essentially. Fascinating. Another of this genre that I have loved was a book called Coyotes, by Ted Conover. Coyotes is the name for for Mexican smugglers who smuggle people across the river into America. Well, he joined a group of undocumented immigrants in Mexico and asked if he could cross the river with them and work crops with them. Though he was a gringo, he told them that he couldn't cross at a normal port of entry because he had a minor criminal record and so needed to live below radar. They said, andale, vamonos, and they took him under their wing and made him one of their own. He worked with them in Texas and Florida and California for two years, crisscrossing America. He learned their ways, and he was helpful as a cultural guide for them here in the States. Thanks to Ted, we get a good look at the culture of undocumented immigrants who work incredibly hard and generally do work others here in the States cannot do or will not do. Another man who did something similar was Adam Shepard. Right out of college, he gave himself an interesting challenge that pushed him immediately into the world of the homeless. And though his aim wasn't specifically to study the homeless as a culture, that was a side effect of this challenge. He was mostly interested in whether or not a person in modern America could indeed pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Could he, with hard work alone, pull himself out of poverty? 
This is what he did. He bought himself a bus ticket to Charlotte, North Carolina, with only $25 in his pocket. This was in 2007 or so, during the economic meltdown of that time, so not the best time to be looking for work. Now, he gave himself some interesting rules. He couldn't use his college degree to get a job. He had to go by his high school degree only. He had no special skills to utilize. He couldn't use any contacts or networks to help him. He was on his own. But his challenge was to start from scratch, hence the title of his book, Scratch Beginnings. And within a year, he wanted to have his own apartment. He wanted to furnish it. He wanted to own a a car or truck used but paid for. And he wanted to have $2,500 in the bank. His definition of success was to be financially solvent, upwardly mobile. He wasn't looking for the Horatio Alger story, the rags-to-riches one. He was merely looking to go from rags to better rags, you might say. He wanted to step up the ladder a couple of rungs, have a safety net beneath him. I asked Adam what in the world made him want to try such a crazy and even dangerous thing reasons that I really, that I decided to do this. Two things motivating me. First of all, I read a book called Nickel and Dimed, Mm -hmm. where Barbara Ehrenreich basically wrote on the death of the American dream. She did a project of her own, started with $1,000 in a car and showed how you couldn't make it. And, and so I think that kind of got under my skin, just her attitude, not the economics and the statistics. That's not what my story is about, but just her attitude, just, just going in to fail and write the book about it. That bothered me. Mm-hmm. And so I read that after my freshman year in, in college, and so the, the gears kind of started to turn on how I could make this discovery for myself. Uh, but also the, the, the main thing for me was I just look at my generation and I look at this, this kind of generation of entitlement and, and greed. And, and I mean, I've, don't get me wrong, I've got some great friends that, that mm-hmm. just graduated college. I mean, good people and, and you know, talented, enthusiastic, all of that. But it just seems like we don't have the same idea of hard work and being smart with your money and integrity and all of these things. We don't have that the, the same American spirit that generations past have had. And I wanted to go out and discover that for myself. Of course, you were young and strong and you were sane. You didn't suffer from a drug addiction or PTSD or some physical illness. You certainly put yourself in a tough spot, no doubt about that. You had a big mountain to climb in a culture you had never had to navigate before. But at least you had no chronic deficits to keep you down and demoralized, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, no, it definitely it changes the, the dynamics, and I think that's one thing that is very important for me to acknowledge, that I am this young, healthy, hard worker. I don't have you know any kind of talents that I'm working with. I'm not good working on cars or... Mm-hmm. The first thing, you know, it, it, what's important for me to, to talk about now is that, is that I didn't have a plan. You know, I didn't, I mean, I knew, you know, I'll get a job, I'll get a place to live. I knew where I was going, but I didn't know, I didn't have, you know, okay, I'm going to go here and I'm going to sleep here. And, and I just kind of arrived. Mm-hmm. And there was a lady of the night that, was, that saw me kind of prancing around, didn't know where I was going. I clearly looked lost. Mm-hmm. And 
she told me, and this is the only time in my life I've taken advice from a lady of the night, but she told me, you need to get to the homeless shelter. And, and she was right. You know, I need to get a roof over my head. I need to get behind closed doors where the door is locked. You know, I need to get off the streets. And so that's what I did. I went down to Crisis Ministries right down there in downtown Charleston, and that's where I stayed for, for 70 days. The perception of homelessness that I had was a bunch of old, fat, bearded dudes with whiskey on their breath, and they're going to be, you know, begging on the street corner all day long. You know, that's, that's kind of who I thought I was going to meet. So to walk into the shelter, and, and I certainly met over my 70 days, I certainly met plenty of old, fat, bearded dudes with whiskey on their breath. You know, <laughs> yes, I, I did. And, but I think to also meet the 20 and 30 and 40-year-old guys that, you know, were, were focused and ambitious and you know, for whatever reason, we're there, but we're getting the heck out and had a plan on getting out. I thought that was pretty uh, pretty cool, pretty fascinating for me to see that. How did you get along with the people in the shelter? Did you connect with them? Did they accept you? It's not like I had to go in there and, and dumb down my language, and mm-hmm. I had to stoop down and, and, you know, talk in a different way. I mean, I went in, and I was myself, mm-hmm. and I was really able to connect with these guys, and I was really able to, you know, see. I mean, one second we're talking about politics, and then we're talking about Britney Spears, mm-hmm. and the great thing about the shelter is that everybody has the, an opinion, and they're not afraid to share that opinion. <laughs> and so we had a lot of lively discussion. I mean, I really, after the first couple of weeks, I was really able to connect with these guys, and I didn't think that was going to happen. I didn't perceive you know, that I was going to walk in and actually meet friends and meet guys that were, you know, my age and, and were struggling and, and had a great story to tell. So I think that's what, what was pretty cool. That's what makes this, this story so special is that, you know, all these stereotypes that I'd read about and heard about, some of them held true and some of them were shattered. And I think that's, that was the biggest surprise for me or, or construction. I mean, I don't know what I'm doing, but I do know, you know, how to go out and, and lift the sofa up the stairs. And mm-hmm. so I think that there are a couple of things that were working to my advantage here. And certainly if I would have been 50 and you start to get a bad back, mm-hmm. a different story. I didn't have bills. So any money that I bring in is money that I get to keep, mm-hmm. you know, and I can go out and, and buy the things that I need. And then I can start to save a little bit of money. What were your first jobs? What did you first do? How did you first put money in your pocket just to survive beyond what the shelter could do for you? Well, the, for the first two weeks, I did little day labor jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, anything. I knew that I just needed money in my pocket right now. I can't wait two weeks for a paycheck. So I did little day labor jobs. I did construction cleanup. I did garbage cleanup. Uh, I did. Uh, we hung baby clothes one day. Every day was a different, a different job. They didn't care if we were male, female. They didn't care. They just sent us, sent us out. And uh, so, though, the, for the first two weeks, I was doing just little day labor jobs just to get, just to get money in my in my hand. Now, you know, there are things that I need. I need pants. I need, you know, I need shoes. I need shirts. I need underwear. I need toothpaste. I need shampoo. There are things. There are things that I have to have now, and rather than waiting two weeks, and so that's what was good, you know. That and I talk about how exploitative the the and and quote unquote corrupt the the day labor situation yeah, is. I thought you were kind of taking advantage of there. Oh yeah, for sure. And I and I talk about that. I mean, here, here's a company that's getting ten dollars an hour, and they're paying us six or six fifty an hour, and so they're and so they're taking that that middle three fifty or or more per hour to send us out on these jobs, and then we come back and we get taxed, which is, you know, taxes happen, but then there's a $5 fee for transportation yes. and this and that, and, and my goodness, at the end of the day, you've got $25, $30 maybe, mm-hmm. you know, for a, for a hard eight, eight, eight hours of work. 
hot sun. Mm-hmm. I mean, my gosh, it, it, you know, it, it's, there's, there's Minnesota in January and there's Charleston in, <laughs> in July. And, and it was Charleston in July. It was, mm-hmm. it was pretty extreme conditions. And so I think it, if nothing else, I think that situation motivated me even more. I was like, I need to get the heck out of here. You know, I've got to, I've got to get something more secure and I need to get a real job doing something where I've got, you know, better money coming in, a, just a better, better situation. Right. So now, now the, 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 the caveat to offer there though, is I was very grateful to have that work, you know, the, those first two weeks, because sure. then I got a little money in my pocket to buy those things. But at the same time, I thought that, that it was a pretty corrupt system. So how did you break out from the day worker job to a better job? Were you out on the streets beating the pavement, filling out endless job apps every day? How did you go from day labor to something steady? Here I am, and I'm applying at, at hotels and restaurants, and all, I mean, I'm, I'll take anything. And nobody was giving me giving me a call. Nobody wanted to to take me on, and so it was interesting how after two weeks, I'm applying for jobs, and and nobody wants to uh, wants to hire me. But you're at a homeless shelter. I'm at a homeless shelter, and your phone and number is a homeless shelter phone number. Yeah, the uh, and there's a guy that I meet, and actually I I called the chapter Job Hunting 101 with Phil Coleman. Mm-hmm. And the, here I am passing applications, and two weeks in, I was, I was complaining. It was one night we were having spaghetti at the, at the shelter, and I, we were sitting around and just talking, and I was complaining. You know, why, why can't I get a job? Is it the economy? What's going on? I'm, I've sent out applications. And, I mean, I mean, come on, here I am. I'm Adam Shepard, the king of the American dream, <laughs> and I'm going to do it with my $25, and I'm going to prove it. And here I am at a homeless shelter complaining about not getting a job. And so there was a guy that, that, that piped in, Phil Coleman. He said, he said, Adam, you can't expect them to just come in and, and call the shelter, these managers to call the shelter and, and just get really excited to hire you. You know, that's not how it works. You have to go to these managers and tell them that you're the greatest worker they're going to find and that they need, that you want to work a day for free or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and tell them that, that, that they need to hire you. And so I went the next day, I went to the moving company and I gave them this, this, I gave Curtis this speech just, I mean, straight from Phil Coleman. I mean, I'd say, Kurt, my name is Adam Shepard. I'm the greatest mover you're going to find. I'll work a day for free, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I just mm-hmm. went on, and, and Kurt knew I was lying. I mean, he looked across the table at me. He knew this skinny kid. He knew that I wasn't the greatest mover he was going right. to find, but he liked my attitude, and he hired me on the spot. Mm-hmm. And, but I think what's, inter- what's most interesting about that is, like I said, this is, this is a guy, Phil Coleman, who was giving me this advice. This is a homeless guy. I mean, mm-hmm. a guy I wouldn't have looked twice at on the street. And so I think to, to take that advice, I mean, it was just such a humbling experience for me, and I really turned the corner to take that advice from him and, and, and run with it. I mean, it really, it, I learned a lot with that experience, and it was, it was great to, uh, to meet him and to, to have that experience. I love this part of the story where Adam said that he was on a truck with two other guys, and since he couldn't do anything much to help them, to help them he just made sure he was always running running for that last lamp in the upper bedroom, running for that small crate of books left in the dining room. He figured that they couldn't fire a man who was running all the time. So after a week, he was put on full-time, and they taught him the trade, how to, how to lift properly, how to use dollies and leverage to maximize your power and uh, save your back. The moving company allowed you, Adam, to get out of the shelter. 
So tell me about that process. Yeah, that's the and, and that was my biggest the the first move out of the shelter. Um, you know, I moved out out of the shelter after seventy days. I bought a pickup truck, and for the first two months out of the shelter. I rented a room from a guy for a hundred dollars a week downtown, and so that I think that's the whole idea here. It, like you were talking about at the, in, in the introduction, this is not rags to riches. This is just building slowly over time, and so maybe one day I'll have a BMW, and that would be great. But right now, I've got this this beat up pickup truck, and I'm going to go live in this little attic, and then I'm going to get my own apartment. And I'm just going to kind of move up slowly over time, and. So for the first two months out of the shelter, I rented a room from a guy downtown, and then I got a room with uh, with BG. We we got a, an apartment uptown. Oh my gosh, we lived. Let me tell you, we lived in the hood. I mean, we lived on the other side of the tracks, no question about it. But we had the nicest furniture. We had the cream colored sofas and the big screen TV. And I mean, I furnished the, my, my entire bedroom and the living room was furnished just, I mean, you know, here we are moving the rich of the rich in Charleston, mm-hmm. and they've got all this furniture that, you know, they're getting the new, new, new stuff, right. so they're getting ready of their, rid of their old new stuff, mm-hmm. and so they say, hey, you know, if you haul that away, you can take it, you can have it, and mm-hmm. so every time I was like, yes, I will take that, will thank take you that. very much. <laughs> Having proved that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you're healthy and disciplined, and if you have genuine ambition to do so, what have you learned about how you think policy might be shaped to help to help make that happen for those who have fallen on hard times and really want a way out? You can't just you can't just throw money mm-hmm. at the poor. You right. can't just say here, you know, go out and, and, and make some things happen. There has there my big thing what and, and what I talk about in the epilogue, I really talk about education. You know, not not just you know high school education and and our public schools and helping kids get into college. That I talk about that in the epilogue, but also, I mean, we've got to educate our parents. My gosh, like, and there's a program in Harlem called Baby College where parents go, you know, single mothers go and they and they learn just parenting skills. And I think that's where it has to start because when a kid is 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, he's already kind of started to develop you know, his ideas, and he, he, he already has his mind made up. But if we can break that cycle by, having, by educating his or her parents, and then, and then I think that, that you've got a parent that's reading to their children at a young age, and it, it just starts to develop a lot sooner, a lot quicker. And I think I would really say education, 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 across the board. That's, what it, that's how we begin to break this cycle. The name of the book, now 15 years old, but still a kind of classic in my mind, is Scratch Beginnings by Adam Shepard. You can get it on Amazon. You can get the Audible version. You can get the ebook, You can get the paperback, whatever you want. It's there. And uh, it's definitely worth a read. Thanks for joining me on this new edition of Beyond Texas. I'm happy to be back again as your host. I'm W.F. Strong. <laughs>